This episode was co-produced by Startup Days, a yearly matchmaking event in Switzerland for startups, investors, corporates, and other key players. Check out startupdays.ch to learn more about this year's edition, taking place in Bern on May 25th. Again, that's startupdays.ch. In Switzerland, we drink, for example, drinking water, which has banned carcinogenic pesticides that are present in concentrations that are 17 times higher than they should be. Welcome to the Swisspreneur Show, a podcast about startup stories and learnings from experienced entrepreneurs. Here's your host, Sylvan. A very well welcome to the Swisspreneur Show. It's a pleasure to have you here today. Thank you for having me. Happy to be here and uh, yeah, hoping to get to know each other. Looking forward to that conversation. You're the co-founder and CEO at Oxile, a clean tech startup with a game-changing water remediation technology. And before we start talking about your actual startup and what you do, I want to start about your background. You are an ETH spin-off. And I just wonder how big of a role do university spin-offs play in the Swiss startup ecosystem from your perspective? Uh, from my perspective, they play a huge role in this in this area. Um, I mean, you get initially when you're founding the startup, you get a lot of credibility. It's like a proof of sound that you come from ETH Zurich as a spin-off. So that's very helpful. Uh, but apart from that, uh, you also get help with the infrastructure, the, you know, the labs you can use, the equipment you need to do your research. Um, it's also been great to attract talent early in the days because you don't have to start from scratch. So from my perspective, it's, it was incredibly um, great that we could get this, um, you know, ETH Zurich spinoff label uh, for our credibility, for our infrastructure, but also the support we get in terms of the grants and the networking with other founders. So, um, yeah, it's a very positive uh, experience for me. So that sounds like a, a lot of benefits, I'm sure, to sort of, realize and, and bring a complex research-based product or technology into a business, there are also some challenges or disadvantages. What are they from your experience? Well, I think it always depends upon the application you're focusing, right? Um, everything, like you said, has good and bad. I would say if you're trying to bring a really complex solution to market, there's a reason you're doing that. I think the reason is you truly believe that you create a very deep impact with that uh, technology that you're bringing to the market, right? Um, and hopefully in everyone's case, it's also solving a very big environmental or global issue. That's also why it is so challenging, right? So in my case, um, yeah, the challenges associated with bringing, you know, a market disruptive water treatment technology to the market is quite a lot. You have to really look at different angles. You know, we have to think about how slow the market entry is, how much investments you need to make. How do we scale our technology from now from a small scale now to a huge scale? So there are, of course, some, um, you know, practical challenges that we, we face. Uh, if you were, um, let's say, doing a SaaS model for a product, it would be very different. But here we're doing hardware and software. So there are challenges, but of course, when you, when you weigh them against the benefits you're creating for people, where these kind of solutions do not exist and how incredibly important they are that we bring these great climate tech solutions to the market and have a huge impact on the people, on our environment, on our ecosystem, it's a no-brainer then. So you have to, you have to do it. You have to do it, absolutely. And you once were faced with that challenging decision, right? Should you continue to be a researcher, the academic path, basically, or 
Should you switch sides and become an entrepreneur? You decided to do the latter. How was that decision? Was that an easy decision for you because of the motivation that you just uh, talked about? Or was it a bit more challenging and not so clear to become an entrepreneur after all? I'm a, I would say I'm a very realistic and very practical person. So, of course, I looked at the pros and cons of the two. Um, I'd never done anything like this. I had a, have a very technical background, you know, from a bachelor's to master's in engineering to then a PhD in this topic. So really technical focused, um, very good at, you know, developing things in the lab and then, you know, um, you know, testing them. I love that. And this is, this requires something completely else. Being an entrepreneur is, completely on the other spectrum um, of, of what you normally would do in a lab. So, of course, as a practical person, you sit and you think, do you have the skills and resources as a person to do this? Because it requires everything. It requires you to give 150%. And you have to love this. You have to love, you know, creating something for a customer in mind, for impact in mind. Um, so if you, it depends on person to person. For me, I, I did the pros and cons list and it was Clear that, of course, it's it's a it's a big challenge. But I think as a person, I also like to challenge myself and you know take on a leap of faith. And I'm a very optimistic person. So for me, it was it became very clear early on that it's a product that works on a small scale. All I have to do is make it work on a large scale and get enough funding and a team to build it. So it should be doable. So yes, it was an easy decision then. Fantastic. And do you have any regrets uh, looking back that you chose to become an entrepreneur so far? Um, not really. I don't believe in, uh, you know, looking back and looking at regrets. So you can always look back and see, hey, maybe if I did this, I would have, you know, a better start. So these are all learnings and you can look back and say, that's a learning I take for the future, for the next steps I take. But overall, no, maybe just to learn a little bit better about work-life balance early on. So I would have a bit more of that uh, or created some structures around that would have been something I would say. Um, yeah, I look back and say, yeah, maybe I could have created some better work-life balance structures for myself because, yeah, now I have them, but it took a lot of learning. But I think most entrepreneurs uh, would tell you that. You don't learn that. You have to create them um, day yeah, by day. You're definitely not alone in that one. Yeah. You also mentioned the team. Your team is made up of eight women and eight men. How much of that was intentional to have a very balanced and diverse team? <laughs> Uh, I mean, as a female uh, co-founder and CEO, of course, I value gender diversity a lot because I truly believe in the benefit of having, uh, uh, you know, equal diversity. You see the benefits that the two genders provide. It's not just the gender diversity. We also really strive for, you know, emotional um, diversity, you know, cultural diversity. It, it comes in all shapes and forms. So apart from the gender balance, you also see we have people from all over the world right now in our team, which is also something we love. Uh, but this was never done intentionally, I have to say. Uh, we always believe if we are solving a big problem that affects everyone, and if our messaging is clear, our core values are clear around, you know, how much we value people and uh, our team and diversity, right candidates will apply. And if you're lucky and if you're doing everything right, magically it's going to be uh, equal diversity because we don't believe in having any prejudices or any, you know, we don't um, already define a candidate in a box because of the gender or where they come from. So we always keep a very open mind and make sure interview process is very fair and very inclusive. And uh, and then we just see what happens, right? When we initially started, um, there were not a lot of female in, in Oxal, I have to say. I was one of the only ones for a very long time. Um, and then, you know, bit by bit, we tried to make a message clear that apply. We don't care where you come from, what gender is. If you have the qualifications, if you fit with the, with the team and you have the right drive, 
you are welcome. So at some point, I think it's just magically clicked one day and then we got a yeah, good balance. Amazing. Uh, I like how you said that you focus on, on the greater good that you build with your company, basically, and then everything else so, sort of followed naturally. So you didn't introduce a quota or anything of that sort. You really assembled the all-star team all organically, basically. That was important to me to do this in the most natural way. So it's sustainable for the future, right? We create a solid foundation for this. So now we know it works in the future instead of forcing people to do that. So um, that was important to me that we do this right because we are solving a big problem, right? I'm sure there are people from every culture and every gender um, who also care about this. So we want to be inclusive. Definitely. And talking about the problem, Oxal tackles the problem of water pollution. So to someone not familiar with that, what kind of pollution is there in our bodies of water and where does it actually come from? So when we talk about like water contamination as a whole, it's a huge, huge topic, right? And then, for example, you would have contamination in the form of solids in there, like, you know, cigarette butts, hair particles. You have contamination in the form of bacteria and viruses. So there are different pollution uh, levels that you can attribute to water. What Ogdal does and what we focus on is the last stage of treatment. It's called a polishing treatment, which is where we are removing something called micropollutants specifically. So we don't do the whole chain. There are other companies who are, you know, 150 years old who do the first three stages of water really well. We come and we install a technology at the last stage of treatment, specifically removing micropollutants like hormones, uh, pesticides, pharmaceuticals, industrial chemicals. And we do this because for these uh, kind of man-made synthetic chemicals, we do not have any good solutions right now in the market. And that's exactly why we always focus on them. We don't want to get, um, we don't want to lose our focus with whatever else is happening in the water cycle. Many players, large players, what they don't have is what we have, a solution specifically for micropollutants. And uh, it's important to us that we focus on that because the regulations are getting stricter on these. We have more data coming out how bad these you know, contaminants are. So what we're trying to solve is really a global problem. Uh, and we have a very clear mission statement that we're removing them in a sustainable, scalable manner with our green technology uh, and uh, also helping other water companies in the process who need our solution as well in their portfolio. That sounds incredibly challenging, but also really important that someone solves this last step, which seems to be the most difficult, the most challenging one. Maybe you can also elaborate a bit what actually happens, what's the effect on someone who drinks polluted water that does not get cleaned in this very last step that you're tackling? Yeah. I mean, the data and the stats on this is actually quite uh, demoralizing, but I'll try to paint a happy picture here on what happens when you drink these chemicals. Um, unfortunately, these micropollutants that we target, they are very persistent. They are very mobile, meaning they easily flow in a water cycle. Um, and they're also quite carcinogenic and toxic to, to humans. And we don't mean at very high concentrations. We also mean at very low concentrations. Actually, that is also why they are called micropollutants. They're not called micropollutants because they're present in low concentrations, like micrograms per liter or something. They're called micropollutants because even at these super low concentrations, they're known to be toxic, carcinogenic, uh, cause birth defects, infertility issues. It's a long list of problems that they cause, even at these low concentrations. So, um, yeah, it's not good if we are consuming them over a long time because... Um, they are bioactive and they are bioaccumulative, meaning if you keep drinking them, they keep increasing in concentration in your blood, in your body and cause 
a wide variety of health issues. So it's extremely important that we raise awareness of this and make sure that we are not consuming water, which is contaminated uh, by these chemicals, because their concentration in our body will just keep on increasing um, until the time when we realize we have a lot of health issues, which is the case in many, many countries right now, including um, in the Belgium, Netherlands region, for example, and US specifically. Uh, we see a lot of reports coming out of how bad the impact of these chemicals are, even in these low concentrations. And just to maybe paint a picture for you to explain what I mean with this concentration. So one nanogram per liter, for example, which is a concentration where they're known to be quite problematic, is equivalent to one drop, a tiny drop of this concentration um, micropollutant in 20 Olympic-sized pools. So you can imagine one tiny drop in 20 swimming pools, for example. That is the concentrations we're talking about that are harmful for humans, for ecosystems, for aquatic animals. So big problem, which requires a lot of attention. That's crazy. You mentioned a few countries now. I was just wondering, where is this problem really urgently to be solved right now? And where is it also present where we might not expect it? I mean, Benelux or the Netherlands that you just mentioned, I would have never thought that they might be affected. So where is this actually a problem at the moment? Actually, this is a problem all over the world, even in Switzerland right now. You might have seen or heard in a few years ago, we had all these really crazy newspaper articles come out that in Switzerland, we drink, for example, drinking water, which has banned carcinogenic pesticides that are present in concentrations that are 17 times higher than they should be. Um, so even in countries like Switzerland, in the canton of Zurich here, we know we, we are drinking them already. This problem is actually a lot worse in also other countries like Belgium and Netherlands, which I know people are always surprised about, but there's a lot of chemical industries there, you know, who are making industrial chemicals there called PFAS, for example, uh, PFAS or forever chemicals, they're also called. They're called forever chemicals because they don't go anywhere. They're very persistent. Once they're in the water, they stay in the water forever. They have a half-life or a chef life of over 100 years. So they don't go anywhere. Once they're released from the production lines or being made, they stay in the water. And Belgium, Netherlands and the US, um, actually all of Europe, it's not a happy picture. If anyone is really curious about that, I highly recommend you Google something called the PFAS Pollution Project. Um, a lot of data came out on the scope of contamination of these one chemical glasses all over Europe. This is fresh data from three weeks ago. It was a 10 year long study. So once you look at that map, you would know even in Switzerland, for example, which canton, which district has how much of these chemicals in the groundwater, in the drinking water. It is insane. It is uh, not funny. Uh, but if you look at Netherlands and Belgium, it's um, unfortunately extremely bad, the concentrations. Uh, they're not as low as in Switzerland. They are extremely bad. And um, at those concentrations, there is no doubt anyone drinking that water is um, developing a very high risk of several types of cancer. Wow, that's really shocking news. Um, I know what I will be doing after our interview to go and Google and, and check out the study myself. Maybe you can also elaborate a bit. Why is nanotechnology necessary to actually eliminate these pollutants? It's a great question. It's a question that we get asked all the time. So why, why your solution? Why nanotechnology, right? And a simple answer is, right, you have to 
fight the devil uh, and meet the devil at the same scale that, you know, the devil is present in this case, the chemicals, right? These chemicals are synthetic, they're man-made, and they are tiny, tiny molecules at the nanometer scale. So you really have to invest in a technological solution that is also in the same scale so you can effectively treat them. With nanotechnology, you get many benefits. You know, you get a very high surface area, right? So which means you get a very high um, cleaning capacity. If you were to do this treatment with bulk materials that don't have a nanoporosity, nano for example, you would need to add a lot of that material to do the same advantage. But if you are smart and you engineer a bulk material with nanoporosity, you know, make it super porous, for example, you increase the effective surface area of that material by 1,000, 10,000 fold in the same space for the same cost. So it's a no-brainer that, you know, if you want to fight these teeny tiny molecules that are present everywhere, you should try to, you know, increase the surface area, increase the capacity of your treatment to really target them and meet them at the same level, right? Um, so no doubt there that these chemicals are very tiny, so you need uh, very tiny and smart materials to fight them effectively. That makes a lot of sense. And you said these are synthetic, these are man-made, man basically. So to what degree can this pollution that we're talking about here be prevented at the source, which might be a bit too idealistic, but I'm going to ask it anyway, instead of remediated? So what is your take on that? I mean, my, my stance on, has, on this has been very clear from the first day, which is, look, I think um, if you look at the global stats, 80% of world's wastewater uh, at the source does not receive any treatment. This is insane to me. Even in developing countries and developed nations, the stats are in the same range. Meaning, for example, if you uh, were to go to uh, you know, a chemical production line somewhere in Europe, there also the wastewater is not receiving the right treatment. And that is exactly why when you let the water go into the rivers and lakes, it, it contaminates the groundwater, it contaminates the drinking water. So it's an extremely, I would say, um, important um, stands that we try to treat them as much as possible at the sources and as idealistic as it sounds I have to say it is really doable you know it's all about making sure that the industries the the end users who are injecting these chemicals into our environment are held accountable many regulations are coming into this effect where they say hey polluter pays the ones who are polluting our environment should be responsible for paying and not the general public you know at the cost of our own health so it is definitely possible. It's all about having stricter regulations. And the one end of the puzzle here is always, you know, if you can't see these chemicals in these low concentrations, you don't know there's a problem, right? But what has happened in the last decade, I would say, is that the water analysis has gotten really advanced. So now you can start measuring and seeing the effects of these chemicals at very, very low concentrations. So now you can start holding polluters also responsible because now you can map you know, in which areas the water is very contaminated and you can see which chemical industry or which pharmaceutical industry or pesticide companies close by. So you know who's polluting the water. So it is possible now because analysis is so strong. Uh, but at the same time, because these chemicals, you know, they stay in the environment for hundreds of years. I think at this point, we really have to talk about stopping them at the source in a decentralized manner. Their, their injection into the environment, but also remediating it. Because if we don't talk about remediation of contaminated groundwater, contaminated soil today, they will stay in the environment and we'll keep drinking that water for another decades, right? So it's, I think we have to do both at this point. We can't just um, hope we'll stop it. It's already in the environment. So we need to do yeah. both. That makes sense. You need the combination of both to really have the effect that we're looking and hoping for. 
you talked about the problem. I also wonder who are actually your customers, because what you described so far, there could be multiple buyer personas, right? That could be cities, that could be industrial customers. Who is your typical customer that you're focusing on today? So right now, uh, our customers are really, we are heavily focused on our industrial customer applications. So these are, you know, our pharmaceutical companies, um, chemical companies, agrochemical companies, food and beverage companies. So these are the players in the market that are, you know, producing these really amazing goods that you and I use every single day. You know, we're, we're so dependent on the best textile that is waterproof, right? We are, we are so dependent on Teflon pans because our food does not stick, uh, personal care products and all. We need these products, but what we need to also do is make sure that these industries and companies are treating their wastewater because if they don't and they don't do it well right now, that's exactly when these chemicals are then being discharged into our river bodies. So this is the main focus that we have, our industrial customers. And with them, we do two types of projects right now. Uh, it is treating the contaminated water in the, in, the, in, the, in the production line itself. So when they're producing them and they're left with the wastewater, we treat that in a decentralized manner. And a second way of working with them, which we also find very rewarding, is already helping them with the remediation efforts. So because they have not treated the water well so far, for example, they have contaminated a lot of groundwater and soil and all those areas around the surroundings. And because of the regulations, they need to remediate that or they have to pay huge fines. So we do two types of projects with the customers. With the same clients, we would sell small modular reactors to treat the wastewater in the production line, but also sell our you know, pump and treat systems, for example, which are, you know, treating and remediating contaminated groundwater, for example, for our customers. And uh, it's a technology that's very versatile and we can do both applications. And it's uh, really amazing to see how you can help the same customer in two very highly needed areas. Yeah, fantastic. I, I also wonder, you know, you said before, the problem is that people or companies mainly that create costs for the environment, for society, don't have to pay for these costs. This is slowly changing due to tougher regulations, etc. What impact does that have on your sales cycle? I imagine if they say, yes, we see that there is a need that we should be doing that, but there's no regulation in place that forces them to do that, that many companies just say, well, this sounds all great and nice, but it's an expense, so we're not going to do it. Is that changing in any way with the tougher regulations that you mentioned, also giving your sales process a boost, or how do you experience it? Definitely. So when we started first talking about this this topic, you know, of micropollution removal, we were mostly talking about, for example, pharmaceuticals or antibiotics in the water, right? Because that was really a hot topic in Switzerland a few years ago. And what we saw there was the regulations were very lax and the public were also not so concerned because they were like, we have these medicines for health. How bad can they be if they're also in our, in my drinking water a little bit? So it was never really taken very seriously because the regulations were lax and the public did not find that a threatening problem, right? Because you consume pharmaceuticals every day. If now if it's in your drinking water a little bit, it's, it's fine. This changed when people started realizing they have, you know, banned pesticides in, in, the, in the water. And specifically when they realized they have these PFAS chemicals. It's uh, So when I say PFAS, uh, for anyone who's interested, there are over 8,000 plus chemicals under this category of PFAS, uh, PFAS chemicals. Um, and they are, for example, you know, used in waterproof clothing, in uh, waterproof, um, um, you know, your personal care products like mascara and cosmetics. They use in Teflon coating. They use everywhere, basically. Everywhere you look, there's these PFAS chemicals that are being used. And now that we know that they are also in a drinking water and groundwater all over Europe, 
here in this particular area, we see a huge amount of traction where the customers now reach out to us, where they know they don't have this time of five, 10 year cycles as they would have, for example, for pharmaceutical cleanup. They don't have the same kind of time for cleanup of these really bad chemicals because the data is now shared publicly with the, with the, uh, with the public as well. Um, so here we have seen customers reaching out to us talking about the urgency they have and how much fines they have to pay if they don't start implementing a solution right away. Um, and this is really, really amazing for us because otherwise we were always, you know, trying to convince them to do better. And now it, the, the game is a little bit different, I would say, where they know they have to do better because of regulations, because of public pressure, because of maps that have come up online about the pollution out there. And you can see which industry did that. So, it, it you know, it affects the industry's, um, sh you know, um, shareholders value is, is also affected by this. Right. So and public don't see them as a green company anymore. They don't want to consume their products. So things are changing in that sense, which. It's great because, and I think it's also because people now know how bad these chemicals are. It's not just pharmaceuticals anymore. It's it's a lot worse um, and it's all over Europe. So I think this is really giving us a boost where we don't chase the customers so much. They come to us and they want to start a project with us right away by doing a paid pilot, being a paid project, for example. There's an urgency there. And that means we need to ramp up our operations much faster than we had planned initially. So it's, it's a great time to be in this water clean, um, clean tech space. Yeah. Absolutely. It's a forcing function triggered by regulations and by a change of thinking to say, hey, we need to act. Otherwise, we get fined or we lose shareholder value and please, whatever it might be, it's time to act. It's that also, but also whatever we have seen is a lot of people right now, you see a lot of these big companies who are outright coming out right now and saying we will stop using any PFAS in our, in our products in the next two, three years, which is a huge, huge blow to their uh, revenue model because a lot of these big companies really depend upon these PFAS to make their products and make their revenues. There is no way in the next two years they'll invent new chemicals to replace them. So they're really struggling at this point uh, with the negative image they have in the public, where they either have to stop producing these, these chemicals and take a hit, huge hit to their bottom lines, or really invent a new treatment systems where they can justify, look, we can still make them, but now we're treating them really well. So this is a really interesting also shift in the market where the industries are now actually coming out and say, we'll stop using them, which is extremely difficult for, you know, for them to say, because they really need these chemicals to make hundreds of products that they make every year. So it's an interesting shift as well, we see. It really emphasizes the urgency of changing the, the current state, how things are getting done. Yeah. You've also raised a total of seven million US dollars in in funding. Um, how is it from from your perspective? Is this now a great time for clean tech startups to be raising money, despite you know the difficult fundraising environment that we always hear about from the US, but also now from Europe? Yeah, I mean, yeah, we all know how tricky last year was for so many startups, and even this year so far has been for startups to raise capital. Um, but, you know, I, I would say the same thing that I said in 2020 when we founded Oxa in the middle of COVID, where I said a lot of these problems will come and go. Water pollution, water contamination, lack of safe water is only going to keep becoming a bigger and bigger problem. Nothing can stop that, no matter if you have, you know, a recession coming or if you have, you know, something else that pops up, you know, a new shiny object that pops up, right? Water is a resource we need to care about. It's a very, very safe bet to make that. No matter what happens in the future, we will always require access to clean, fresh water resources. So this has been um, something that we you know, take quite 
um, strongly the impact we are creating, and also uh, explain to our investors and our and our you know business angels of how safe this bet would be in the long term, because a lot of things will change. This is something we can truly bet on. Looking at the regulations where they're moving, looking at the industries making pledges to really clean up their mess, uh, the public pressure. So many market drivers are on this side for us, right? And um, a lot of now amazing journal articles and VC articles are also coming out that say water is the next big climate bet in, in the in the VC market. It is a severely underfunded area of, um, you know, clean tech. It's always about, you know, other sustainability topics that we always hearing where VCs always invest. Um, all of them also deserving their limelight. But water has been severely underfunded, for example, for a very long time. Um, but yeah, I think overall, we've seen that the problems that we have created over the last three to four decades can only be solved with huge impactful clean tech startups you know um, not just water but everything else that is happening in the space so for any vc who who thinks or gets you know scared about the long-term investments that they will make or the long-term returns they will get with the investment in clean tech they i think there's also a shift in their thinking now where they're like the investments or the returns will come much, much later than with a different model that you could have. But the impacts you create and the market um, addressable market sizes that we're talking about are so attractive and so, you know, fruitful and impactful that there is a shift here. And I think um, I'm seeing that a lot of my friends in the clean tech space are seeing that. So it's, it's, it's a good time to be in a really impactful clean tech segment. And it's also highly important, of course, with all the issues that we have at hand. There are also many potential solutions available. And at the same time, it seems that especially in the US, clean tech is also still getting a bit this new shiny hot thing from a VC's perspective. There's a lot of activity there. So that, of course, also attracts more people, more startups, more funding. Is it getting more difficult to also stand out from the crowd in a, in a more attractive market, so to speak? That's, that's a very great question. I think if you were doing a different product in a clean tech segment, probably I would say, but in water, you know, the, the thing is there's so few uh, innovative solutions that are coming onto the market in the space of water. And I think that is simply because um, it was so underserved for so many years that I think people were always scared to enter the space to create solutions because in the water segment, you have these huge players that have been around for, you know, 10, 20, 30 years. So you always think you have to compete with them and then you get demoralized because there are other small players in the market who are doing new innovative tech. Um, but I've always believed um, that water, um, if you're innovating new solutions in this space, um, you don't have to think of these big um, players as your competitors, but you can think of them as your partners because they are not building what you're building. They're not doing innovation. They're not doing R&D. Their budgets are all about scaling their existing product portfolios. They're not doing what you're doing and they would want to partner with you or they would have to because of the regulations and the public demand. So what we're also seeing is that it is um, not that tricky, I would say, to stand out in this clean tech space because you hardly ever see a water startup come on stage and talk about water. It's always when you do that, they're like, oh, water. OK, interesting, because no one does that often, you know. So it's, 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 we get a different kind of attention where people are like, finally, someone is talking about water in the climate space. So, um, yeah, it's interesting. And, you know, the, the movement in the space, not only from a client side, but also, of course, from the investment side, Sometimes people also wonder, well, we all say we want to have impact. It's really important that these issues get solved. But some companies also move because they want to have a better reputation, a better brand, but maybe don't care as much about 
the cost as, for example, you as a founder of your own company do. So how much of the movement and development in the space is also a bit greenwashing? Is that something that you, you met yourself in the space? Yeah, I mean, look, there are all kinds of players in the space, you know, where they're like, oh, we are a green product. And then because we recycle everything in our you know, pipeline. And then when you look at the fine print, you, we, we realize they recycle maybe 1% or something. And just because of that, they call themselves green and recycle the product. So unfortunately, there is a lot of greenwashing because um, big corporates know that public right now is responding very, very positively to green products, right? They want to use our money where we are not causing more damage. It's clear. So unfortunately, there are there are a lot of players out there uh, maximizing on this, um, you know, recycling and being green and sustainable image. Uh, but then also there are a lot of companies, you know, who are showing what they're doing. If you are, in our case, for example, right? For example, if you are going on a customer site and you're implementing your solution and you're checking the quality of water before and after, and after your solution, 99.9% of these toxic chemicals were gone, there's a greenwashing around it. It's just gone. It's not there anymore, right? So in, in many cases, it's very easy and very powerful to show your impacts because you can directly measure it, right? It's not a hidden impact that will show up in 10 years. Um, so for some cases where you are directly doing something of value, of good, um, and you can transparently show the data of, of the impacts you're creating with the solution right away, right? Or even in the coming short term, um, then you can bifurcate this topic of greenwashing. And I think it's, it's important that other water water companies or you know green tech companies really focus on on the impact they're creating right now and transparently showcase that. Otherwise, yeah, you can also be you know umbrella together with other corporates who who do that without transparently showing that data. Yeah. On the other hand, you know, with the impact that you have and and the cause that you follow and and want to change in the world, it might also be easier to attract talent as a clean tech startup. Is that something that you noticed when recruiting new hires? Well, definitely. I think, you know, once um, you're going out there with a job description and with a clear, you know, mission and vision as to what you're trying to do with, with your startup, um, you'll see a lot of people who apply to that because it resonates with them. You know, water is a topic which is deeply personal to so many people for so many reasons, no matter where you come from, right? Um, so, of course, we get a lot of talent, which then also makes our, our, our job difficult because we still have to do our due diligence on, on this talent that we got, right? Um, we have to make sure that, of course, the technical skills are fit, the team fit is good, the culture uh, fit is good, the, the fit with the values that we have in a startup you know, work. So we get a lot of interesting candidates. Um, not all of them, um, I would say, truly understand uh, the importance of what we are trying to do. So you really have to also have a vigorous, you know, hiring and screening process to make sure that you're only attracting uh, the people who fit into the space. We have limited resources um, and we want the best talent who don't just bring amazing innovation with the technical skills, but are truly mission driven. Um, and that's also, you know, extremely important to us as a startup to create this culture where everyone thinks alike or cares in the same way about it. It's not just about the paycheck you get at the end. So we get a lot of candidates, but it also makes the job uh, difficult, I would say sometimes, because you have to sift through them and you have to really understand, you know, can you see this person with you in five and 10 years also? Because that's the kind of company we're building, right? So we are, you know, interviewing them, keeping those thoughts in mind. And some people are great on paper, uh, even in the first, or second round of interview and the third round when you talk about team fit culture fit you know value fit that's when we see a lot of people um 
not uh, be the best fit, for example. But you will need a lot of more people to scale up because the demand is here, the technology is here. So now it's really time to enter the scale up mode. And I wonder what are Oxal's most important milestones to hit in the near future? What do you want to tackle? So we are in this really amazing space right now, as you mentioned, right? Uh, a lot of new data coming out of the pollution, a lot of customer requests. So we are exactly doing things that we have to do to make sure we are ramping up our market entry. So this is, for example, doing a lot more customer projects this year in different verticals. So when we talk about the water treatment space, it's the industrial customers, wastewater, but it's also the remediation space where you really work closely with the customers and the regulators uh, and do remediation projects of groundwater. We also, for example, started doing customer projects with soil washing water where you know, we always assume the soil is contaminated. Unfortunately, we can't help them, by, by, but by regulations, um, many of our customers, for example, have to wash the soil if they have to, for example, build or construct anything in that area, which means now they have water contaminated with these chemicals because they wash the soil with it. And that's where we come into play because they have nothing else to do uh, with that water. So we are really entering two, three key verticals where we see the huge impact you, may, you can make and the urgency from the customer. And that's one of our key milestones for this year is to have these three key verticals really, you know, mapped out with multiple customer testimonials um, so that, you know, we can easily grow in these verticals in the future. Another important milestone for us is to increase the production capacity of our cleaning material by 100x. So uh, if you have to keep up with the supply and demand from the customers, we really have to increase our internal capacity. We already increased the production capacity by 100x in the last two years. And this year we have the challenge by end of quarter three to increase it by a further 100 times. So it's a it's a quite a big milestone uh, to hit, but um, we could definitely do that and we will do that. So this is also something very interesting for us for this year. And uh, we'd also have our first industrial product uh, ready for, you know, customer uh, purchases by end of the year, early next year. So we're also ramping up our industrialization processes uh, with the help of manufacturing partners for the market entry of our products. So a lot of interesting things happening this year. And not to forget, as you mentioned, growing a team in the right verticals as well. So that's a huge milestone to get more leadership roles into Oxal, more C-level roles this year, and also people from a lot of industrial experience in you will certainly be very busy over the coming months. I can already tell. Yes. So to wrap up the conversation today, I also have prepared four rapid fire questions for you. I give you a short question and you have to answer in one sentence. Are you ready? Yes. Okay. What's your biggest ecological sin? Um, I love to explore new places and new cultures and new food. So I travel once or twice a year to new and exotic places, which I know not so good, but I balance that by making sure I'm fasting a lot and not consuming so much food. So I find my balance. Which clean tech solution besides Oxile, of course, really excites you? It's a, in one sentence, huh? um, I'm like really excited about every, the space of direct air ca uh, carbon capture space where you know we are pulling out the carbon from the air. Um, it's really exciting, really fascinating, but also the area of um, plant-based, um, you know, meats, uh, plant-based alternatives for milk. I think it's, it's really in interesting and especially because I consume those products in the end and I feel good about it. So, yeah. There's a lot going on in that space. Yeah. Do you make decisions quickly or do you mull over them for weeks on end to find the right decision, the best decision possible? 
Um, I'm a very decisive person, I would say. Um, it always, of course, depends upon the urgency and the importance of the topic. Sometimes it is good to mull over and think about it. But I would say even for extremely important topics, uh, I think in the first one or two minutes, I know there's a 70% chance I'm going this way or that way, even if I do take a few days. But overall, quite, quite decisive, I would say. Great. And the last one for you today, when it gets tough out on the startup road, what do you tell yourself to keep going? I think this is something I remind myself once a week about these days when it's so busy. I think it's always about just, you know, looking at the big picture and thinking of the impact you're creating and just reminding yourself because it's so easy to get lost in the day-to-day meetings and and schedules. Um, Big picture, think why you started this journey and um, just stay optimistic, yeah. I like that a lot because it sort of links back to the cause. Why do you get up in the morning and you link that what you do with your company to your personal life. And I think if that's in sync, you can move mountains, as you would say in German. You can really go very, very far and have a big impact. I liked it a lot. I think that's a wonderful way to end the conversation. Vachir, thank you so much for coming on the show. Lots of success and all the best for your future. And really excited to see where you will take Oxile. Perfect. Thank you also for inviting me and for the lovely conversation. Uh, Yeah, it was a pleasure. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, you can support us by rating our show on Apple Podcasts. This way, we can reach an ever-growing number of aspiring entrepreneurs.